Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer and Me, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBT experience. My guest on Bammer and Me today is friend and longtime activist Eric Sawyer. Eric has been very active in the LGBT community, specifically with AIDS-related causes, having co-founded ACT UP, The Housing Works, and Health Gap, three pivotal organizations ensuring that people with AIDS are taken care of. He was also an advisor to the United Nations AIDS program. Eric's current initiative is spearheading plans for a queer liberation march in Manhattan during this coming weekend's 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion. We're glad to have you with us today, Eric. Eric, let's start with the obvious question. Why do you see the need for an alternative to the traditional LGBTQ pride march? What prompted you to lend your voice and effort to creating this countermarch with both happening on the same day? Well, my opinion and the opinion of most of the people in the Reclaim Pride Coalition that is organizing the alternative on March is that Heritage of Pride Parade has lost its soul. You know, originally the parades, the you know, the, they, they were actually called gay liberation marches in New York were marches where LGBT people were demanding their rights. We were demanding an end to persecution by police. Uh, we were literally outlawed then. We were still thought to be mentally ill. It was illegal for same-sex relationships to happen. It was even illegal to serve a drink to a known homosexual in New York City. And so what happened and what set off the Stonewall riot was the police raided a bar that, that wasn't even really a bar. It was a social club that provided alcohol to harass and arrest a lot of, of gays and lesbians because of that law that forbid us to be served alcohol. And the people in the bar rioted. I mean, starting with drag queens, transgender people, but they got pissed off and said enough. And they started throwing shot glasses and taking off their high heels and, and attacked the cops that were you know, beating the shit out of them and trying to throw them in, in a car. Spurred like you know, days of riots. And, and that started liberation a movement here in, in New York and spurred it around the country. And so these marches, you know, sprung up around the country to demand our rights, to demand an end to the violence and persecution by cops and law enforcement, to demand equal protection uh, under the law and to prevent people from being fired from their jobs or evicted from their apartments or, or any number of, of attacks on civil liberties of gays and lesbians simply because of who they love. And what we feel, the Carriage of Pride Parade, which was, like, which was it was called until we you know, brought up the March issue for our rights, it's now been rebranded a March, uh, basically uh, had become um, a circus parade and a series of circus parties that you know, acted as a corporate marketing platform for corporations to buy expensive floats to be up front in the Gay Pride Parade under the television coverage and uh, LGBT groups and HIV groups were shoved to the back of the parade and it was done economically by, you know, your placement in the parade tied to how much money you donated and, you know, you had to buy a, a float up front in the parade for forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 and, you know, small community groups could only afford to pay a few thousand dollars and then they got stuck way in the back of the parade. The number of wristbands that they got to allow 
their constituents to march in the parade were dramatically less than the you know corporate big con- you know contributors and so it just it just seems like forgotten our history we've for- forgotten why we have those events and you know we spoke out to heritage of pride met with them a number of times and said look this has to stop you know sure you need economic support we need corporations to be supportive of and there's lots of lgbt diversity groups in corporations now but that shouldn't be our you know total focus it shouldn't be about how much money can you know some group give us it should be about what issues do we want to draw attention to what rights do we currently lack not only here but around the world right. and so after failing to get heritage of pride to open the process for planning and to hear us out in terms of what the priorities of the groups we represented were we we realized that the only way we were going to have a political march that talked about rights that talked about issues from around the world instead of trying to sell, you know, a particular brand of alcohol or to, you know, promote a circuit party was to plan a march and a rally ourselves and so we rolled up our sleeves and that's what we're doing. Has that process by the Heritage of Pride Pride been totally lacking in transparency? Absolutely lacking. There's there's almost no space provided for any type of input or adaption to their processes uh, to their placement of groups in the parade and you know we fought back you know we organized a, a resistance group which you know through a lot of political pressure and embarrassment in press you know got a small contingent front loaded to the parade but it wasn't a general change to the way the parade uh, was run and so you know we we really felt that to remain true to the soul of why that march was created uh we we needed to create our own march that returned to and reclaimed that history i was i marched last year in the parade on a corporate float that sponsors a nonprofit whose board i'm on and it was a thoroughly enjoyable experience of course but i too noticed the lack of participation by the activists that brought us to where we are now and it seemed to me like there would just be an easy solution if only they were open to it you partner every corporation right. with an lgtb organization and make them take a certain number of those people into their float or into their contingent or help pay for them to follow right and that you know that would make a lot of sense I'm, i mean if you even like observe the parade you know from a high you see all these police barricades lining the entire parade route and people can't join that they can't come off of the sidewalks and into right. the street which you know, they used to be able which to which they used to be able to unless they have a corporate wristband right. unless they're you know unless they are part of a paying sanction group and you know that's totally so uh, is that for monetary reasons or is that a fear of terrorism or whatever going going out of it, control it's primarily a monetary uh reason and to try to attempt to contain the size of the parade and you know those barricades and whatever uh actually are an impediment that you know cause um a bottleneck and slow down the whole process of the progression of the parade and so which they, is why it ends at 9:30 at night now exactly which you know where's the urgency in in you know getting our message uh, across and like the community groups who are trying to promote a, a message or a cause are stuck way in the back and by 9:00 at night when the parade is ending you know everybody is either too drunk to hear their messages or have long you know gone to the peer dance or 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 something else so what kind of traction have you been getting with organization for the parade 
What kind of turnout do you expect? Do people uh, voice enthusiasm for this? Yeah, we've had somewhere uh, north of 450, 500 organizations from around the world endorse us. You know, the, the metrics on social media for people who are coming uh, to the parade are, you know, kind of low, like, you know, 5,000, 7,000 people. But you never really can tell how those numbers are going to translate. And, and the other thing is that a lot of the people who are seeing our websites and our social messaging are local. And, you know, there are, are anticipated to be between two and four million people coming into the city, you know, looking to participate in the festivities. And if you're looking to, you know, demand your rights or to try to join a fight for, you know, equal rights around the world, we're one of the very few non-exclusive, non-ticketed uh, events that you don't have to pay a shitload of money to join. And so we're hoping that our numbers are, are swelling. The, the Parks Department and the Police Department, and, and we are estimating, you know, somewhere between 20 and 25,000 people uh, but we really don't know, and we've reserved the Great Lawn on Central Park because it, you know it holds sixty thousand people, just so that we can have a large, cohesive parade. Should uh, we, you know, gain traction and draw those types of numbers? I'm surprised that's all it holds. Well, that that's what the police try to limit it at, right. and they put all kinds of rules of barricades right. and and certain gates where people can come in and counters. And all of those types of things to try to limit it. You know, it's estimated there were more than a million people at some of the anti-war uh, demonstrations on the Great Lawn that happened. You know, a few and hundreds of ago. thousands of concerts held every Absolutely. summer. I Absolutely. was I was at the Great Lawn for the the, the Gay Pride March in 1978, and there were far more than 60,000 people there. In fact, just as a little plug, go to Bammer 47, my Instagram page, and you can see some of the photos I took at that event, including a close-up of Grace Jones on the stage. Awesome. Uh, as she was performing. Awesome. Uh, what kind of publicity are you getting and how are you getting the word out? Well, we have a social media campaign that's starting to kind of gain more traction in terms of people retreating and reposting mm -hmm. our our postings. Uh, we actually need help in, in that vein. And I, you know, thank you for agreeing to, to do a, a podcast about this. We are gaining a lot of attention in the media, the whole heritage of pride versus uh, queer liberation march. David uh, uh, Goliath. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Conflict, you know, is adding to the publicity, and hopefully that will continue to rise. We're hopeful that we'll have a good turnout, but you know, you never can tell. Do you foresee this as a one-time event, or do you expect that the queer liberation march might eventually outstrip the traditional corporate march? Well, you know, we haven't really made that determination yet. There are people within our group who would like it to be an annual event. There are. Others uh, in the group who feel that, you know, this is mainly to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Stonewall and try to change the narrative for these types of events, not only in New York, but around the world. Uh, a lot of it will depend on whether or not Heritage of Pride uh, and other pride organizations around the U.S. and world become more open and transparent and, and return to the to the soul that generated these these marches in in the beginning. Well, I, I plan to be there and wish you the best of luck. I Thank hope you. it's a great turnout. What does the use of the word queer in the march's title signify to you? You know, there's something of a generational divide in the everyday use of queer. Sure. With millennials having embraced it in as an inclusive form, while baby boomers like me have a hard time forgetting how the word was used to marginalize and devalue our community. Has it been largely embraced? 
I, I think you can kind of look at the N-word and the way that people of color, black people, have embraced that term for their own use within their own community as a way to, you know, try to seize that, uh, re, you know, reclaim the power of that word and, you know, change the narrative around, you know, a hate term. And de uh, defang it. Right, exactly. You know, like... Uh, and that's a lot of what's happening with the word queer uh, is that people are trying to own it and and say you're not going to you know control us or make us feel bad anymore because of calling us that yeah we are queer we're different than the norm and that's part of the movement to you know to reclaim and and to defang I like that term uh, that word um, but the the other thing that millennials and younger people are showing us is that labels don't fit the majority of people in the world. And that, you know, there are lots of gender non-conforming people, transgendered people, polyamorous people, uh, uh, you know, kind of whole spectrums of how people identify, how people, you know, see themselves and want, you know, want to be referred to. And, you know, it used to be that it was just gays and then it was gays and lesbians and then it was, you know, bisexuals and, you know, a whole series of, small segments of the community started to be recognized in our branding or how we're described. And that list keeps growing and growing and growing to, you know, asexual and polyamorous and, you know, questioning and, exactly. and intersex. And, and Yeah. And we chose those two reasons to use Queer Liberation uh, March. And we use liberation uh, because, I mean, a lot of people say equality. Well, equality is, you know, a really small concept. It's like being the same as somebody else, where liberation is kind of all-inclusive. It, it's, you know, looking forward. It's like it's breaking open the, the walls that are holding us back and allowing us to expand our vision and, and our desires and, and what we can accomplish to the extent of, the, of what the universe will uh, enable. And so those were specific choices for the words queer liberation march to your point when i put up photos from the different marches in washington for lgbtq rights that i've attended uh, from 1979 to the 87 march which i didn't participate in to the 93 march to the 2009 march each and every one of them has an entirely different name right. using very different words and it got more complicated as time went on right so it's kind of funny to watch that progression um, to help explain why you think our community needs this march right now, can you tell your listeners what it was like when you first arrived in Manhattan and what have been the most pronounced changes since then? Like, what have we gained versus what have we lost? Well, I, I mean, here in the U.S. and especially in New York, which is, you know, the seat of liberalism, uh, if not in the world, definitely in the U.S., we've made incredible advances. I mean, when I moved here, um, you absolutely had to still be closeted in society, in the corporate world. You know, it was still a, against the law to have same-sex relations. It was still classified a mental illness to, uh, to be gay. You know, you, you know, literally had to hide who you were to operate in the, the business world, especially if you expected to advance in any way. I worked for a management consulting firm about 10 years after I uh, uh, came to New York and you know literally they prescribed the color of the shirts that you wore what kind of ties the color of the the suits how short or how long your hair was uh, and and um, 
and there there were also certain norms that kind of related to sexual identity and orientation and you know i was told on many different occasion your hair's looking a little faggy you you know that ties a little gay you your shirt isn't really blue it's kind of lavender you can't wear that here anymore and there were raids on venues that allowed contact sexual relation or anything like that and when when hiv hit the scene there was a huge crackdown on any establishment that allowed any type of physical contact or sexual relations to you know to happen in you know a club uh, or any kind um bathhouses were closed bars were run out of business by uh harassment by the by the police and and so you know there was no anti-protection laws against discrimination for uh being LGBT or for having HIV so you could be fired from a job evicted from an apartment denied health insurance denied a burial by a funeral home uh if you died of AIDS i mean there was one funeral home in the west village and one on the upper east side two in all of new york city that would bury somebody who died of AIDS or visiting your partner in the hospital who exactly. was ailing exactly and and you know uh there were literally specialized units set up in a few hospitals that were designated as AIDS centers where they attracted largely gay and lesbian nurses doctors health professionals to treat people with aids because orderlies wouldn't bring your your food tray into your apartment nurses aides wouldn't bathe people you know nurses would be afraid to touch people to take their vital signs i mean and a lot of doctors and hospitals literally would not take patients who had hiv can you imagine an emergency room refusing to treat somebody that shows up with kaposi's sarcoma because you knew it was aids i mean it it was a a really hard fight to uh prevent those things from happening and it took huge demonstrations it took organizations like act up to be created took class action lawsuits it took public embarrassment you know in the media in the press and it took a lot of celebrities and liberal thinking individuals of of power to come forward and say this ain't right this is a violation of human rights every life has equal value and this shit has to stop and when you had people like uh you know Ted Kennedy Senator Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts and Elizabeth Taylor and and uh Dr. Matilda Krim who helped start the American Foundation for AIDS Research with Elizabeth Taylor and countless other actors and Broadway stars you know organizing uh, events you know to raise money for the care of of people with aids that should have been happening you know by the federal government by the city and state government and and these people you know took it into their own hands to find organizations like Amfor to fund research to try to find treatments because the government and the drug companies wouldn't do that it embarrassed drug companies well, if i remember correctly ronald reagan didn't mention the word aids until 7 years through through his two terms right that, that's absolutely true and ironically how he was forced to do that was by nancy reagan and friends of his like um uh rock hudson dying of aids and people uh like magic johnson one of the best basketball players in the world said you know we need help as you know you you can't um continue uh to not address this issue um you know because of the people who are infected um it's been reported that when Ronald Reagan was asked in a cabinet meeting by one of his cabinet secretaries about AIDS in about 1984 you know 
uh, President Reagan, shouldn't we do, be doing something about this AIDS uh, crisis? His response was, why? Aren't the right people dying? <laughs> Everybody in the cabinet, except for the, the cabinet member who brought up that question, laugh. And, you know, there were questions about what are you trying to tell us? Uh, you know, you got it. There's something you want to tell us about your sex life. Right. You know, those were just totally inappropriate responses. But at the time was first gay, gay men, then drug users, then sex workers, uh, throw in some innocent victims like people of color and, and, and children. But, you know, the view was that all the right people were dying. They were the lowest people on the totem poles, the, the junkies, queers, and whores, and that they were expendable. A lot of the uh, treatment that came forward early on was only for the innocent victims, the hemophiliacs and, and the babies that got it from, you know, from their immoral parents. And, and that was the knowledge or the call on the streets, especially by people like uh, Senator Jesse Helms, you know, you get that disease from your immoral behavior. And if you want to stop the spread, you need to stop doing perverted things. And it took a lot of education to make people realize that it's, that this disease comes from a virus. Uh, it's transmitted, sure, by blood and sexual fluids are things that everybody have. And it isn't just the blood or this, you know, the, the sex acts of uh, you know, junkies, queers, and whores, it's um, uh, sex acts where bodily fluids are uh, exchanged between someone who has the virus and doesn't that cause the disease. And we need to look at it medically and try to take interventions to stop its spread. And we need to do research to develop treatments to save people who have the disease, prevent its spread. Just to kind of uh, frame this for our listeners, uh, what brought you to New York when did you come and how did you get involved in AIDS activism? What prompted you to help found ACT UP in 1987? Well, I moved to New York because I realized that I was a gay man and that um, I was, you know, living in, in Boulder, Colorado. And, you know, there were very few out gays and lesbians there, a small community. There were, you know, only one bar in, or two bars in Denver. Couldn't really live kind of free or enjoyable life in a, you know, small city like Denver. And you, you come to New York, there's a vibrant gay community there. Are, you know, the, the West Village is a neighborhood that's largely LGBT. And it was just a better uh, quality of life here. And so I moved here because I was gay. I got involved in the formation of, of ACT UP because Larry Kramer was one of my very first friends that I made here when I moved here in 1980. He was one of the first people that sounded the alarm. He's the prophet of, you know, the HIV response. And he started first the gay men's health crisis and then act up to try to, you know, force a response from society, from the government, from the drug companies to try to stop the dying. And my own boyfriend, Scott Bernard, came down with Kaposi's sarcoma and AIDS diagnosis in 84, died in 86. And it was about that time that Larry was formulating the idea to start the civil disobedience group. I, you know, called him up and told him that Scott had died. He, he'd been giving me advice through, you know, his ailment, helping me find treatment, clinical trials and, and doctors. And he said, you know, God, I'm really sorry, but, you know, I'm trying to start an organization that'll do civil disobedience actions like the anti-war, the anti-nukes movement, the civil rights movement uh, about AIDS, you know, if you're as pissed as I am about Scott dying, uh, as I am about all my friends dying, 
uh, why don't you join me? Why don't you, you know, help turn that anger and that rage and that grief into action and try to change the circumstances of AIDS and undo this lack of appropriate action? And I said, of course, sign me up and showed up at the first meeting, agreed to be a plan in the audience to stand up and say, I'm going to join, uh, you know, be a rabble rouser, try to get my friends to come and volunteer and um, uh, the rest is history. Was that a full-time or a part-time endeavor? Uh, initially, um, I was still employed. Uh, we started to act up in 87. While I was symptomatic at that time and had tested HIV positive, I didn't have an AIDS diagnosis. Um, my boyfriend died on an airplane on his way to visit his mother uh, without me because I couldn't get the day off from work to, to travel with him. And that triggered me being transferred to a boss that was more understanding, um, who you know, gave me space. And I did the work that I did with ACT UP after work, on weekends, et cetera. But uh, eventually that boss left the firm. I got an AIDS diagnosis and I was forced onto long-term disability. And you know, without working, I had time to, to devote pretty much full time to, to AIDS activism. Well, you've pretty much done that for the last three decades, I would say, right? Yeah, that's pretty true. <laughs> I mean, I know you've got a kind of a private passion of uh, renovating and, and building and, and selling right. homes, so it right. kind of gives you an outlet. But right. other than that, you've been uh, kind of HIV, AIDS-related straight through for 30-plus years. Right, and I even uh, chose to use that avocation and interest in housing to create Housing Works, which provides housing and medical care for homeless and formerly homeless people living with AIDS. Well, you know, thank you for everything you've done on behalf of the whole community. Uh, obviously, we will do whatever we can to support the Alternative Queer Liberation March. I wish you the best of luck with that. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we, we end? Um, just that your listeners should realize that one person can change the world. I mean, if you look at what Larry Kramer has done by starting GMHC and helping to... Uh, uh, you know, initiate the founding of, um, of ACT UP or, you know, what four of us did when we created uh, Housing Works. You know, we, we created an organization that houses, houses and provides medical care to thousands of New Yorkers. It's, you know, now got a, over a $100 million budget, over 500 employees. Uh, and, you know, you can make a difference if you believe in your truth, if well, you take action and... Um, and uh, believe that you can make a difference. Well, if you're any example, you certainly can. And as Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change you want to see. Thank you very much, Eric. Thank you. I'd like to thank Eric Sawyer for joining me on BAMR today and to remind our listeners that HIV and AIDS still amount to a global crisis affecting the lives of millions of people every year. Thank you for listening. This episode of Bammer and Me was produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, and Caleb Holland. For more interviews and stories, please visit bammer.co.